hello everyone. It is time to read the Des Moines Register for this Wednesday, October 25th, 2023. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. I'm Dennis May and my partner at the microphone for the next 90 minutes is Barb DeHack. For the first hour, we'll cover local and national news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and lifestyle news. We ramp up our broadcast with Dear Abby. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the volunteer voices of Iris going strong at iowareadyreading.org. And now, let's take a look at the weather and the headlines from today's Des Moines Register. Our statewide AccuWeather forecast calls for mostly cloudy and warm today with a shower during the afternoon. Our winds will be from the south at 4 to 8 miles per hour with periods of rain and a thunderstorm tonight. The forecast for Des Moines calls for a high today of 75 with a low of 63, mostly cloudy and warm, a shower again this afternoon. On Thursday, a high of 73 with a low of 48 and again a shower and a thunderstorm. And then the temperatures start to drop with Friday, a high of 53 and a low of 35. So across the area, it's going to be mostly cloudy and warm with showers in places this afternoon. Our Iowa, or excuse me, our national extremes. Do you want to know how the temperatures are changing? It was 93 degrees in Edinburgh, Texas on Tuesday and 16 in Standpoint, Idaho. Before turning to the headlines in today's paper, I do have an announcement to read. At the request of our listeners, Iris is moving the airtimes of some of our newspapers. The Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger have been combined into a one-hour show that you will hear at noon. At 1 p.m., it's the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. 2 p.m., you'll hear Dubuque Telegraph Herald. Your Cedar Rapids Gazette is now at 3 p.m. each day. 4 p.m. is the Sioux City Journal. At 5, you can hear the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. At 6 p.m. is the rebroadcast of the Des Moines Register. At 8, you'll hear this week's I Will Salute. At 9 p.m., it's Consumer News. And 10 p.m. is the Wall Street Journal. And we wind up the day with the New York Times at 11. And now turning to the headlines in today's Des Moines Register. Scott to go all in on Iowa amid struggles. He was really proud Iowan. Tom Stoner, Senator Grass's last serious primary rival, lived with exuberance. And teen who saved man and dog from the icy car shot in hunting incident. And here to get us started with today's readings is Barb. Take it away, Barb. Thank you, Dennis. He was a really proud Iowan. Tom Stoner, Senator Grassley's last serious primary rival, lived with exuberance. Tom Stoner, noted business broadcast executive, longtime Iowa Republican, and former rival of Senator Chuck Grassley, died on October 19th of pulmonary fibrosis. Surrounded by family in his adopted second home of Annapolis, Maryland, Tom died the way he lived, with an exuberance and obituary notes. He was 88 years old. He was a really proud Iowan, says Chuck Offenberger, the Register's former Iowa columnist. And though he lived the second half of his life mostly out of state, he never lost track of Iowa and always wanted to know and was curious about things here. A shrewd businessman, Stoner grew his family's fortune by founding Stoner Broadcasting, a conglomerate of more than 100 radio stations that he and his partners sold to CBS in 1999. 
and American Tower, which was at one point the world's loudest network of cell phone towers. Later in life, he was also a generous philanthropist who supported many causes close to his heart, namely the arts and Nature Sacred, the nonprofit now run by his daughter, which seeks to install green spaces in places in need of nature's medicinal powers. But he may be most remembered for challenging Grassley in the stalwart Republicans' first campaign for U.S. Senate, marking the first time Grassley faced a serious primary challenge. Stoner was a significant political figure in the state, says Offenberger, and cut from the same old as Bob Ray, a moderate and one of Iowa's most revered governors, known for welcoming Thai Dom refugees to, into Iowa in the wake of the Vietnam War. Having already been involved, an involved businessman, Stoner chaired Ray's 1972 and 1974 campaigns and became the state's GOP chairman from 1975 to 1977, leaving to spend more time with his family and, as would be revealed, prepared him out in 1980 run himself. The primary between Grassley and Stoner was viewed as a battle between the conservative wing of the party, represented by Grassley, and the moderates, represented by Stoner and Ray, the Register wrote at the time. A number of national and single interest groups, including anti-abortion activists and gun owners, came out in support of Grassley. That year, more than 55 percent of registered Republicans, up from the usual 20 to 30 percent, came out to the polls for the heated primary. The heat, however, was tapered for Stoner. He lost by 32 percentage points and carried only nine of the 99 counties. Quote, the very conservative elements are certainly stronger than they have been in any recent election year, Stoner told the Register on the night of the primary. But the laws didn't stop Stoner from continuing to affect politics, both directly and indirectly. Indeed, many who know him said he never lost the positivity he exuded while in the heady final days of his run when he declared, I'm terribly optimistic. I believe I have something to offer. Born an only child in Des Moines to an upper-crust father and an actress mother, Stoner had an innate intelligence and a preternatural ability to hold people's attention, says Mary Ritchie, friend to the family since 1975, when she and Stoner's wife, Kitty, joined the Commission on the Status of Women. His ability to be in front of an audience was unmatched, she says. He had this very easy-going style and this twinkle in his eye. He made it look easy. A self-made millionaire, T.I. Stoner, started whitewashing houses after school at just 13, the humble beginnings of what would become the family's billboard and outdoor advertising firm. Despite the family's wealth, Stoner's father wanted him to know the real meaning of work, Stoner told the Register in 1984. So while the rest of the kids were out playing football, I was building signs, he said. I could dig post holes, I could post signs, and I could do illumination. Stoner attended the Cranbrook School, a boarding school in Michigan, where, according to his obituary, he built his first crystal radio set. He then studied economics at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and headed straight for the family business CEO chair. In the 1960s, he abandoned billboards for radio, founding Stoner Broadcasting System, and invested in a real estate development firm. By 1979, his net worth was nearly $9 million, according to records filed in the Senate race. <clears throat> Quote, he's a very agile guy mentally, and he's very careful in thinking things through, friend Buzz Breton said in the Register profile. There's been a lot of talk about him being born with a silver spoon in his mouth, and it's true, he did inherit some wealth. 
but he's turned that over two or three times, got out of one business and into another, and turned that into a lucrative business. And he's structured it all so he can do other things, like, for example, run for office. Similar to Ray, his mentor, Stoner was a moderate Republican. Quote, in that fit Iowa like a good work club at the time, Hoffenberger says. That was the heart and soul of the Republican Party that had ruled Iowa since the Civil War. They had evolved over time, but they were still a progressive group of moderates that did well by the state. Stoner had been a member of the Young Republicans after college, but stayed out of the fray until 1972, when he managed Ray's re-election and followed that up quickly by playing the same role in the 1974 campaign. Iowa governors had two-year terms until 1974. I remember some of the stories when the governor was mulling whether to run again, and he asked, can you promise it will be fun, said Dave Ullman, a Republican strategist who was a first-time staffer back then. Tom promised that it would be, and he was the one that made it fun. Within a matter of days after joining the Ray campaign as a 22-year-old, Ullman says the team chilled specifically because Tom and Kitty knew how to make them feel like they were each important and each deserved a seat at the table. Having been in business, he knew how to organize and how to make something run like a clock, Holman said. Stoner went on the road with his staffers, visiting chairs of the larger counties, which was uncommon at the time, Holman says, but he wanted to put eyes and ears on all parts of the organization. And with Watergate taking over every inch of newsprint, this was not an easy year to be a Republican. That November, many incumbent Republican governors lost re-election campaigns, including a majority in the Midwest. But with Stoner's help, Ray was re-elected. After that, Oman says, Stoner got the bug himself. He was already so much like Ray, hardworking, high energy, rich sense of humor, able to laugh, great on TV, that he figured he'd try his hand at being the, on the ticket instead of just behind it. Tom was forever young, Oman said. He was so energetic and so fun-loving that it was a complete joy to work with him. A few years after Stoner's loss, Oman went on a trip out east and visited Stoner in Annapolis. Stoner told him that he'd gone to D.C. soon after that election and invited Grassley out to lunch to say that anything that had happened in the campaign, well, that was ancient history. That was Tom. I ran. I didn't make it, but that was yesterday, Oman says. But today is a new day. Soon after his loss to Grassley, Stoner relocated to Annapolis, a move he said put him closer to the Federal Communications Commission and to the ocean, where he could participate in his beloved pastime of sailing. He also opened Conflict Clinic, a gathering of some of the nation's finest minds, according to a radio story, that was tasked with solving big issues and disputes before they blossomed into catastrophes. In the same vein, he founded World Talk in 1988, the first live radio call-in program directly linking citizens of the U.S. and the USSR. And nearly a decade after that, he and Kitty founded Nature Sacred. Stoner was a patron of art and music, Richie says, hosting an exhibit that bolstered the Stanley Museum of Art's national reputation and funding the Stoner Theater inside the Civic Center. In a 19... Pardon me, a 2012 Baltimore Sun article, Stoner and Kitty shared how they had gone on a worldwide hunt to collect 40 pieces from 40 sculptors that best represent the 20th century. But not only did they collect, they studied, reading biographies and memoirs of each of the artists, visiting galleries, birthplaces, even graves. And at age 70, Stoner decided to learn both piano and croquet.
He really was a lifelong learner, Richie says. That's what I remember, that he never, ever, ever stopped trying new things and learning new things. He was amazing in so many ways, but in that sense, he was truly inspiring. Stoner is survived by his wife, Kitty, four children, five grandchildren, and three great-grandchildren. Our next article from today's Des Moines Register front page, Scott to go all in on Iowa amid struggles. GOP Canada's campaign is seeing worrying numbers. As his campaign sputters nationally, U.S. Senator Tim Scott is aggressively shifting resources into Iowa this week, doubling campaign staff and pledging to go, quote, all in on campaigning in the first in the nation caucus state. According to his campaign, Scott will employ staff numbers in the double digits by the end of the week, with more to come, and he will open a West Des Moines headquarters. The campaign will also shift planned television and buys from New Hampshire into Iowa. And, beginning after the November 8th GOP presidential debate in Miami, Scott will plan to campaign in Iowa every week until the January 15 caucuses. Tim Scott is all in in Iowa, his campaign manager Jennifer DeCasper said in a statement. As the candidate with the highest net favorables, Tim Scott is the best position to compete on caucus day. No candidate other than Tim Scott has the resources, the foundation of support, and the message to be successful in the Hawkeye State. We're all in on Iowa as an important first step on the road to winning the nomination. The news of Scott's Iowa shift comes amid concerning signs for his campaign. Scott is not yet qualified to appear on the November debate stage, according to tracking by Politico. Though he has a sizable war chest, his campaign is spending far more than it's currently taking in. And his allied super PAC recently announced it would cancel most of the remaining $40 million in fall TV ad spending it had reserved on Scott's behalf ahead of the caucuses. In a memo to donors, PAC officials said, quote, We aren't going to waste our money when the electorate isn't focused or ready for a Trump alternative, end quote. Scott campaign said its planned shift predates the PAC memo. His all-in strategy also comes as other candidates are doubling down on the state as the caucus cycle enters its final months and polling remains stubbornly steady. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' campaign announced it would shift a third of his campaign staff into the state over the coming weeks. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley has added experienced Iowa hands to her team and opened a Clive headquarters. And former President Donald Trump is dramatically ramping up his campaign calendar. All of them are banking on caucus history that shows candidates surging in the final months and the weeks of the campaign cycle. Five of the past six winners of the Iowa caucuses didn't lead a Des Moines Register Iowa poll until November or later. Barack Obama, Mike Huckabee, Ted Cruz, and Pete Buttigieg, or never led one, which was Rick Santorum. The only exception was Hillary Clinton, who consistently led the Iowa poll throughout 2015 and early 2016, but with a shrinking margin. She ultimately won the caucuses by just a fraction of a percentage point over Bernie Sanders. But Trump's margin is historically large, and his campaign has said it expects to win. According to an August Des Moines Register NBC News Iowa poll, Scott had a higher net favorability rating than any other candidate in the field, with 59% of likely Republican caucus scores saying they had a favorable view of him. Another 17% said they had an unfavorable view. 
That poll showed him in third place with a 9% of the vote. But a real clear politics rolling average of more recent Iowa polling shows him in fifth place with 6%, behind Trump at 50%, DeSantis at 17%, Haley at 9.5%, and entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy at 6%. Still, that's better than Scott is doing nationally, where he is the first-choice candidate among just 2%. According to his campaign, Scott hopes to use the shift in resources to help tap into the support of evangelical Christians who make up a sizable share of the Iowa caucus-going electorate to help close the gap. They see Scott, who frequently quotes scripture on the campaign trail and boasts high favorability numbers among evangelicals, as being uniquely positioned to court those voters. Many evangelical leaders have signaled a willingness to abandon Trump, but have yet to coalesce around a challenger. The campaign plans to boost paid media efforts around socially conservative issues, it said. Scott's travel schedule has reflected a strategy that has included Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. He has held 43 public announced campaign events in Iowa, far fewer than the 80 events Ramaswamy has held or the 64 hosted by former Vice President Mike Pence. But the new strategy would put him in the state far more frequently. Scott is in the midst of a five-day bus tour of Iowa, with planned stops in Iowa City, Maquoketa, Cedar Falls, Marshalltown, Indianola, Creston, and Griswold. He plans to return next week for a series of events. Teen who saved a man and dog from an icy car is shot in a hunting incident. An Iowa teen who saved someone's life when a car fell through the ice is now fighting for his life in the hospital after he was shot in a hunting incident. Joe Salmon was shot Saturday morning while hunting for waterfowl at the Spring Run Wildlife Area in Dickinson County. Dickinson County Sheriff Greg Bell said someone was shot in the head. Now 18 years old, Salmon made national headlines in February when he helped save the lives of Thomas Lee, 83, and his dog Cooper, who fell through the ice of East Okoboji Lake in their jeep. Salmon, a wrestler, football player, and track runner at Okoboji High School, was ice fishing with his mother when he saw the jeep start to go under. Salmon was able to shatter the car window and get both Cooper and Lee out to safety. Now, Salmon lies in a hospital bed at Avera Medical Center in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, recovering from a gunshot wound he received to the back of his head while hunting that morning. Joe is an inspiration to so many, a hero, and right now he is a hero who needs saving, Jess Axler said on a GoFundMe that's seeking $50,000 for his medical costs. Axler said Salmon lives with her sister. According to the GoFundMe, Salmon was put in a medically induced coma after two BBs from a shotgun shell were too deep for the surgeon to safely retrieve. They took Joe off sedation two hours ago, said an update on Sunday. Since then, he's moving his legs a little bit more and squeezing hands. He moves his eyes slightly with a little blinking, all good signs, but we still aren't out of the woods. In an update Tuesday, Axler wrote, he's fighting and we are seeing progress in his healing. According to a news release from the Iowa Department of Natural Resources, Salmon was taken by helicopter to the hospital. The incident remains under investigation by the Iowa Department of Natural Resources Law Enforcement Bureau. As of Tuesday afternoon, the GoFundMe has raised nearly $34,000.
I honestly didn't know what to expect when I started the GoFundMe for Joe, Axler told the Register. I started it because I didn't want him to worry about the financial side of his recovery. The amount of people donating time and resources to Joe is extremely humbling, and our family is so grateful. The school district also started a fundraiser for Salmon's medical expenses. Checks made out to benefit of Joe Salmon can be dropped off at the school district offices. It is also selling shirts with the words, Be a Hero for a Hero, with a hand-drawn photo of Salmon in his football uniform. Turning over now to the Metro and Iowa section, our headlines on the front page. Barr faces second suit from slain man's family. The wife says Tavern was negligent in over-serving gunmen. An article, Live Nation partners with Des Moines promoters for a new facility in Waukee. The vibrant music hall will fill a gap in the area and offer capacity of about 3,300. Navigator officially pulls plan for pipeline. Carbon capture effort faced several obstacles. And bird flu hits two more flocks in Iowa, including one holding 47,500 turkeys. From Donnell Eller, Navigator officially pulls plan for pipeline. Navigator CO2 Ventures has filed a motion to officially withdraw its petition to build a $3.5 billion carbon capture pipeline after running into regulatory and legislative challenges in Iowa, South Dakota, and other states. The Omaha-Nebraska-based company told Iowa regulators Monday it seeks to withdraw its petition to build a hazardous liquid pipeline across Iowa, finalizing its October 20 announcement that it was killing its plans. Navigator proposed to build a 1,300-mile pipeline that would carry liquefied carbon dioxide emissions from ethanol and other industrial agricultural plants across Iowa, Nebraska, Minnesota, and South Dakota to Illinois, where it would be sequestered deep underground. Navigator asked its petition to be withdrawn without prejudice, potentially leaving the door open for the company to reapply. Despite the wording, Navigator said Tuesday it has no plans to revive the pipeline plan in Iowa. It also doesn't plan to sell pipeline easement options it negotiated with landowners along the proposed route, despite language in the agreements that would, quote, allow for reassignment. Elizabeth Burns Thompson, Navigator Vice President of Government and Public Affairs, said when the company on October 20 announced it was shelving its pipeline plans. Burns Thompson also said Iowa landowners will be able to keep payments they've received from Navigator, which has spent hundreds of millions of dollars planning the project and obtaining the easements. Summit Carbon Solutions, a competitor planning to build a $5.5 billion carbon capture pipeline across the Midwest, including in Iowa, has said it's ready to sign up Navigator's industrial agricultural partners, declaring it is well positioned to add additional plants and communities to our project footprint. Poet, the world's largest ethanol producer, along with the Iowa Fertilizer Company in southeast Iowa, planned to connect to Navigator's Pipeline. South Dakota-based Poet said it hasn't abandoned plans for carbon capture at its 18 ethanol plants, which include a dozen in Iowa. It said on October 20th it would continue to pursue viable technologies that help us maintain access to fuel markets and increase value to farmers. Not only is carbon capture seen as a way to keep ethanol viable amid the effort to limit global warming, it's also part of an effort to position the industry to make sustainable, lower-carbon aviation fuel, a 100 billion gallon annual market. 
Pipeline opponents in Iowa, Nebraska, and other states say they'll continue to fight Summit and Wolf Carbon Solutions, another company that has proposed building a pipeline in Iowa and Illinois. Landowners, farmers, state lawmakers, and other opponents have voiced concerns about pipeline safety and potential damage to farmland and the drainage tiles beneath it, as well as Summit and Navigator's plan to use eminent domain to obtain pipeline easements from landowners who won't voluntarily sell them. Wolf has said it would build its pipeline without using eminent domain. Burns Thompson said Tuesday that Navigator also will withdraw from pending lawsuits against counties that impose setback requirements that are more restrictive than those in state and federal regulations, and against landowners who have prevented company surveyors from entering their properties. Ethanol ethanol proponents say the pipelines are vital to American agriculture, providing a way to lower carbon footprint of the ethanol industry, a huge buyer of the corn that states like I will grow. And the Biden administration is offering billions of dollars in tax credits to incentivize carbon capture projects as it seeks to combat climate change. Burns Thompson, in the October 20 announcement, said Navigator was canceling its plans because states across the pipeline's footprint have treated permitting for carbon capture pipelines differently than for the crude oil and natural gas and ammonia pipelines many of them also have. In addition, state lawmakers have been discussing changes to the permitting processes, creating even more uncertainty about what the future may hold, she said. In September, South Dakota regulators denied Navigator's request for a permit, and the company twice pulled its permit application in Illinois, where it sought to sequester carbon dioxide. Earlier this month, Iowa regulators agreed to let Navigator pause its permit request for an 800-mile stretch of the pipeline through the state while it awaited regulatory action in Illinois. Ames Space Summit also has encountered headwinds and, on October 19th, pushed back two years to 2026, the timeline for making its pipeline operational. Barr faces a second suit from a slain man's family. The Des Moines Eastside Bar is facing a second lawsuit from the family of a man fatally shot in his parking lot two years ago. Andrew Hall, 46, died in December 2021, several weeks after being shot outside Maingate Bar and Grill on East Grand Avenue across from the Iowa State Fairgrounds. The shooter, 17-year-old Drake Russell Armstrong, later pleaded guilty to manslaughter and other charges. Armstrong was intoxicated at the time of the shooting, and Maingate bartender Jessica Olson was later charged with serving a minor and being an accessory after the fact to the shooting. She pleaded guilty and got probation. Hall's underage son, who witnessed the shooting, and his mother sued Olson and Maingate in 2022, accusing them of over-serving Armstrong before the shooting. That suit was dismissed in August, although court filings do not specify if there was a settlement. Now the bar faces a second lawsuit, this time from Hall's wife, Caitlin. Her complaint, filed earlier this month, accuses the bar of negligence for over-serving Armstrong and for loss of consortium or companionship on behalf of herself and her minor child. The bar does not yet have an attorney listed to represent it. An attorney who defended the bar in the previous lawsuit did not respond to a message Monday seeking comment. Attorneys for the Halls also could not be reached Monday. Bird flu hits two more flocks in Iowa, including one holding 47,500 turkeys. 
Two more episodes of bird flu have been reported in Iowa, hitting about 47,500 turkeys at a Pocahontas County commercial operation, and roughly 50 birds in a backyard flock in Guthrie County, the Iowa Department of Agriculture said Monday. The central and northwest Iowa infections follow a report Friday of an occurrence of highly pathogenic avian influenza among 50,000 turkeys in Buena Vista County. Birds and infected flocks are destroyed to prevent further spread of the illness. After seven months without an infection in Iowa, the fall migration of wild birds is apparently spreading the disease anew. The birds, in particular waterfowl, can infect domestic flocks, often without showing symptoms of illness themselves. Governor Kim Reynolds issued a disaster proclamation from Buena Vista County to help state and federal agencies respond to the outbreak. The proclamation, routine for areas with bird flu cases, allows government agents to assist with, quote, tracking and monitoring, rapid detection, containment, disposal, and disinfection, end quote. This outbreak has lasted about a year and resulted in about 59.4 million birds nationally being destroyed, including about 16 million in Iowa, the hardest-hit state, U.S. Department of Agriculture data shows. Since the outbreak began in Iowa on March 1, 2022, 35 commercial and backyard flocks have been infected, USDA and state data show. Iowa is the nation's largest egg producer, with 59.4 million egg-laying hens, and the seventh-largest turkey producer, with about 12 million birds, U.S. data shows. State and federal officials require the area around an infected facility to be quarantined and any poultry there to be tested. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the recent infections in birds do not present a public health concern and remain safe to eat poultry products. Article, last article on the front page of today's Metro and Iowa section, Live Nation partners with Des Moines promoters for a new facility in Waukee. Vibrant Music Hall will fill a gap in the area and offer capacity of 3,300. The new Live Nation Entertainment-owned performance venue, Vibrant Music Hall, is benefiting from the expertise of the Des Moines-based concert promotion and booking company responsible for many of the shows across venues in the area. Live Nation and First Fleet Concerts, owned by Sam Summers of Hinterland Music Festival and Valley Ballroom fame, has partnered to serve Vibrant Music Hall, which will open in Waukee on November 5th with rock band Need to Breathe. It's the first Live Nation-owned venture in Iowa. Summers spoke to the Des Moines Register about the partnership during a tour of Vibrant Music Hall on Monday. First Fleet Concerts began in 2005 and has brought performers to Woolies in Des Moines, Waterworks Park, and XBK Live in the Drake neighborhood, as well as Gabe's in Iowa City, among other venues. Summers said the people at First Fleet Concerts know that the shows that perform well. Plus, Vibrant Music Hall's mid-level size is something new for First Fleet Concerts, filling a long-acknowledged gap in the Des Moines metro for performers who may not fill Wells Fargo Arena 16,110 capacity, but would draw too big of a crowd for a venue like the 800-person Woolies. Vibrant Music Hall's capacity is about 3,300, according to General Manager Haley Biancala. We'll do what we always do, Summers said. That's booking with agents every day. My team will get avails, put offers in, bring them to the room. Then we'll work in partnership with the venue staff here to announce their show, promote them, and bring great quality events to the area.
Live Nation will handle setup. The box office ticketing, Ticketmaster and Live Nation, they merged in 2010, among other responsibilities. Summers explained, he explained that, and First Fleet Concerts, he said, is involved in the entirety of the process, one that begins with communication from an artist or an agent and ends with producing the event the day of. First Fleet Concerts benefits by getting the opportunity to produce shows at Vibrant Music Hall and accessing, accessing the resources a large company like Live Nation has. Live Nation Entertainment annually books 40,000 concerts and over hundreds of festivals, according to website. We're constantly trying to grow as a company, First Fleet Summer said. I think this partnership is really good. It's a good one that allows us to continue growing. First Fleet Concerts staff is made up of 24 people, according to Summers. So what types of shows can you expect to see at Vibrant Music Hall? First Fleet Concerts has previously worked with Live Nation for shows. Now the two companies will be working together for shows at a Live Nation-owned space. We are very excited for the opportunity to come up, Summers said, of this partnership with Live Nation for Vibrant Music Hall. It's very easy for us to pitch a venue like this and we don't have to do much explaining when we're putting in offers to an agent. This is the new space that opened up. They know the quality of these spaces, what they're like in other communities. Vibrant Music Hall is set up for a variety of programming, in part because of its flexibility to have seating on its first floor in front of the stage, in addition to seating on its second level. Expect diverse programming from concerts to comedians and other speaking engagements, Summer said. Vibrant Music Hall's size is what differentiates it from other performance venues in the Des Moines Metro. It's intended to fill that gap that previously existed for artists seeking a venue with capacity larger than Woolies or Hoyt Sherman Place, but less than Wells Fargo Arena. We're constantly trying to connect the dots from Chicago and Minneapolis and Des Moines, and it's a great market for that, Summer said. So what's scheduled so far? Well, here are the performances Vibrant Music Hall has announced previously. Rock Band with Black Crows were scheduled to perform at the venue in November while opening for Aerosmith's Farewell Tour. The rest of the Farewell Tour was postponed to 2024, disrupting the Black Crows' availability. The Grammy Award-nominating rock band from South Carolina, behind songs like Brother and Who Am I, averaged 2.5 million monthly listeners on Spotify. They'll be joined by Ju Judah the Lion and a band from Tennessee spanning country to alternative rock music on November 5th. And that will be Need to Breathe. Maverick City Music. The Worship Music Group has won five Grammy Awards since their formation in 2018. Their song Promises, featuring Joe L. Barnes and Naomi Raines, peaked at number one on Billboard's Hot Christian Songs chart in January of 2022. That's in addition to other chart-topping songs, including Fear Is Not My Future and God Really Loves Us. That will be on November 11th. Skillet and Theory of a Dead Man. Skillet is a Christian rock band that performed or formed in Tennessee, whose 2009 song Awaken Alive made Billboard's Hot 100 chart that same year. Their 2009 album Awake went double platinum, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reported, and they have since released more albums, including last year's Dominion, the show presented by Des Moines radio station KAZR's Laser 103.3, also brings Canadian rockers Theory of a Dead Man on November 12th.
John Cleese will be there on November 15th. The English actor, writer, and producer, beloved for being a founding member of Monty Python, brings his tour An Evening with the Late John Cleese to Vibrant Music Hall. Cleese is also recognizable for his many film roles, including 1988's A Fish Called Wanda, as well as Nearly Headless Nick and the Harry Potter franchise. Blue October will be there on November 29th. The alternative rock band out of Houston is perhaps most recognized for the 2006 hit song, Hate Me. Blue October's latest album is Spinning the Truth Around Part One. That spin said it's bringing back the transportive experience of the old-school album journey with the first of a two-part expansive opus. Pierce the Veil will be performing on December 2nd. King for a Day, Pop, punk and rock band Pierce the Veil comes to Waukee months after their February album release, The Jaws of Life. The Southern California band that emerged during the subculture scene performed at the When We Were Young Music Festival in Las Vegas last year. Pierce the Veil is joined by supergroup L.S. Dunes, post-hardcore band Dayseeker, and punkers Destroy Boys on Jaws of Life tour. Scott McCreary The Season 10 winner of American Idol, Scott McCurry, is a country singer from North Carolina. He's behind the song's Five More Minutes, It Matters to Her, and This Is It. McCurry won New Artist of the Year from the Academy of Country Music in 2011. He will be performing on February 9th. On March 28th, you can see Whitney Houston Tribute. Fans of the beloved I Will Always Love You singer and actress can hear her music live with Queen of the Night, a tribute to Whitney Houston. The award-winning vocalist who died in 2012 is behind hits like I Want to Dance with Somebody and I Have Nothing, among dozens more, and starred alongside Kevin Costner in the movie The Bodyguard. Chicago. From If You Leave Me Now to Saturday in the Park, the Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Chicago have captivated audiences since the late 60s. The Grammy Award-winning band, whose sound has incorporated jazz, R&B, and more, will be performed at the Extreme Arena in Coralville in May and will be playing on May 18th. Riley Green, the country singer from Alabama, will come to Vibrant Music Hall on his Ain't My Last Rodeo Tour. Green is known for songs like There Was This Girl and Different Round Here. He performs on May 31st. And finally, Excision will perform on June 18th. G.J., producer and festival creator Jeff Abel, or Excision, will bring the bass to Vibrant Music Hall. He's released several albums and created the music festivals Lost Lands in Ohio and Bass Canyon in Washington through Excision Presents, his event production arm. Tickets for all these events can be purchased on Live Nation's website. Iowa prison guards claim right to facts when facing disciplinary cases. Three correctional officers have filed a lawsuit against the Iowa Department of Corrections, alleging they are being denied access to information relating to disciplinary actions taken against them. The prospective class action was filed by Michael Chandler, Eddie Jones, and Chad Madison, who work at the Newton Correctional Facility, on behalf of themselves and all others similarly situated. The complaint alleges the three were entitled to investigatory reports related to disciplinary actions taken against them. Filed in a Polk County court, it cites a section of IRA code it alleges the state violated by denying the request for the information.
The code section states that, quote, if a formal administrative investigation results in the removal, discharge, or suspension, or other disciplinary action against an officer, copies of any witness statements in the complete investigative agency's report shall be timely provided to the officer upon the request of the officer or the officer's legal counsel upon request at the completion of the investigation, end quote. Jones was issued a written reprimand on June 14, 2021, for not completing an inventory. He contested the discipline, arguing that Department of Correction lacked just cause to issue a written reprimand. He requested investigatory information in August 2021, but never received a copy, according to the lawsuit. Chandler was given a one-day suspension for allegedly failing to perform an adequate property search of an inmate's bunk. He later contended he had been given an incorrect bunk number. On April 26, he made a written request for the complete investigatory file, but was denied after being told that, quote, this is done at the grievance level, end quote. The lawsuit contends that he still did not receive the requested information after filing a grievance. Madison received one-day and three-day suspensions in August 2022 for reasons not specified in the lawsuit. In April, he requested the investigatory information for both suspensions and was informed the invest information would only be provided at the Public Employment Relations Board level. The lawsuit asked the court to declare the denials to be in violation of state code and to award Chandler, Jones, and Madison compensatory damages and attorney fees. It also asked the court to declare the department may not withhold witness statements and investigatory files from any officers who have been removed, discharged, or suspended, or who have been the subject of other disciplinary action, and that it must provide the information within seven days of its request. The Iowa Attorney General's Office did not respond to an email seeking comment. Man dies in ATV crash on east side of Des Moines. A man died Monday after losing control of an ATV on the east side of Des Moines. Fire responders arrived at the 2800 block of CB and Q Street at about 4.31 p.m. after hearing about an ATV crash, according to a news release. They found a 58-year-old man with critical injuries who later died in the hospital. Interviews with eyewitnesses and the investigation indicates to officials that the man lost control of the ATV, left the road, and rolled, according to a news release from the Des Moines Police Department. The crash is still under investigation. This is the 13th traffic-related fatality of 2023. Turning now over to some national news, Emmer in, then out, asked Speaker Choice. At least 20 colleagues opposed Minnesotan in closed-door votes. Another one bites the dust. On a hectic Tuesday, Representative Tom Emmer, Republican from Minnesota, won the Republican nomination to be the next House Speaker. Moments later, Emmer faced fierce op opposition from conservatives and former President Donald Trump. Less than five hours later, Emmer withdrew when it became clear he could not reach the near-unanimous party support needed to actually get the job. The all-too-familiar collapse reflects the bitter intra-party infighting that has plagued House Republicans. They have failed to unite behind a new speaker for three weeks, during which chaos and uncertainty have roiled the chamber. 
The first two GOP speaker nominees, House Majority Leader Steve Scalise, Republican from Louisiana, and House Judiciary Committee Chair Jim Jordan, Republican from Ohio, dropped out of the race as well, run through by the splinters fracturing the House Republican Conference. Now Republicans must try to find a speaker for the fourth time. After Jordan failed to win the speakership for the third time last week, House Republicans went back to the drawing board. Eight lawmakers stood up for the job. Representative Dan Mauser, a Republican from Pennsylvania, withdrew Monday evening at a candidate forum. Representative Gary Palmer, Republican from Alabama, dropped out before Tuesday's closed-door voting began. In their first three rounds of closed-door voting Tuesday morning, Republicans eliminated Representative Jack Berkman, Republican from Michigan, Representative Pete Sessions, Republican from Texas, and Representative Austin Scott, a Republican from Georgia. Emmer got the most votes in the first round, said Representative Tim Burchett, Republican from Tennessee. But by 11.30 a.m., they had paired a list of candidates down to four. Emmer, Brian Daniels, Republican from Florida, Kevin Hearn, Republican from Oklahoma, and Mike Johnson, Republican from Louisiana. Johnson was the penultimate man standing. Emmer's is the number three ranking House Republican, serving as a House Majority Whip. He also served as chair of the National Republican Congressional Committee, the campaign arm of House Republicans, from 2009 to 2023. His Minnesota district includes the northwest Twin Cities suburbs and the city of St. Cloud. All it takes for a candidate to win the GOP nomination is a simple majority of the conference. So right after Emmer won the closed-door majority vote, Republicans took a roll-call vote to see whether it had the necessary support to bring a bid to the House floor. There were at least 20 GOP holdouts, said Representative Nicole Molotakis, Republican from New York. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican from Georgia, told USA Today that she was among them and voted for Jordan in the internal secret vote. Immediately, Emmer began fielding questions from skeptical colleagues, according to Representative Mike Garcia, Republican from California. Johnson of Louisiana said Emmer vowed to not break up into smaller rooms and hold separate private meetings with Republican opponents. Instead, Emmer stayed in the room with all of the holdouts to consolidate their differences. One of the main concerns is that they want new blood as they consider the next speaker, Johnson said. Johnson himself said he would be supporting Emmer on the floor. At an impasse, the Republican meeting broke for several hours. When they reconvened, Emmer withdrew. In a key move, former President Donald Trump disdained Emmer. Before Tuesday, he, pointed, he pointedly refused to endorse Emmer, but said he planned to stay out of the fray, while his allies criticized the Minnesota lawmaker on social media and talk radio. Well, I think he's my biggest fan now because he called me yesterday and he told me, quote, I'm your biggest fan, so I don't know about that, end quote. Trump told reporters in New Hampshire Monday as he filed to run in the state's primary. But on Tuesday afternoon, Trump told, took to Truth Social to claim that Emmer was totally out of touch with Republican voters. It cannot be believed when he says he is, quote, pro-Trump all the way. Emmer voted to certify the 2020 election after the Capitol riot on January 6th of 2021. 
Former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican, California, was removed in early October after Representative Matt Gates, Republican from Florida, led a group of eight Republicans who voted to remove the Speaker, joined by 2,000, or excuse me, joined by 208 Democrats. The move to oust McCarthy, known as a motion to vacate, and the support of a handful of hard-right lawmakers who expressed anger at McCarthy for working with Democrats to avert a government shutdown last month. After his removal, McCarthy said he was leaving the speakership with a sense of pride. Since then, Representative Patrick McHenry, Republican from North Carolina, has served as the speaker pro temp. The interim role doesn't carry full speaker powers. The House can't consider legislation until they elect another speaker. And they can't work on crucial priorities such as passing funding packages to avoid a government shutdown. Israel is increasing attacks across Gaza. The release of two more hostages and reports that talks were underway involving dozens more captives offered a glimmer of hope Tuesday for the families of more than 200 people believed held by Hamas since a murderous attack by militants into Israel less than three weeks ago. More than 1,400 Israelis have been killed since Hamas began its incursion, and the Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza said Tuesday that Israeli airstrikes in the Gaza Strip had killed at least 704 people in the previous day. That has brought the Palestinian death toll from the war to 5,791, including 2,360 children, Health Ministry spokesperson Ashif al-Kiddo said in a statement. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said Tuesday that 33 Americans have died in the war, one higher than the State Department reported Friday. During a White House briefing on Monday, John Kirby, the National Security Council's coordinator for strategic communications, said about 10 Americans remained unaccounted for. One of the two Israeli hostages released Monday shared harrowing, a harrowing tale of survival. Yosheva Lifshitz, speaking at a hospital in Tel Aviv, said she was swept out of Israel on the back of a motorbike, her legs hanging off one side and her head on the other. Lifshitz, 85, said Hamas militants beat her with sticks, bruised her ribs, and made it hard to breathe as they kidnapped her during their October 7th attack. Lifshitz said she was driven into Gaza, was forced to walk for miles through a web of underground tunnels, and went through hell. But she said captors treated hostages gently, fed them, and allowed them to wash. They ate one meal a day of cheese and cucumbers, she said, adding that her captors ate the same. She said the operation was well organized and appeared to have been planned well in advance. She said the people assigned to guard her told us they are people who believe in the Koran and wouldn't hurt us. Lifshitz was released with Nurit Hitchak, 79, after negotiations involving Egypt and Qatar. A video released by Hamas says Lifshitz shows Lifshitz shaking hands with one of her captors as she is freed, saying Shalom, the Hebrew word for peace, tranquility, or harmony, as well as hello or goodbye. President Joe Biden has consistently urged Israel to make the release of hostages a priority in the war. But Biden said Monday that he would not consider supporting a ceasefire until all hostages kidnapped by Hamas are released. Some liberal Democrats in Congress have urged Biden, who has stood in complete solidarity with Israel since the Hamas October 7th attack, to facilitate a ceasefire agreement amid rising casualties among Palestinians in Gaza and warfare that has complicated the delivery of humanitarian resources. We should have those hostages released, and then we can talk, Biden told reporters at the White House. 
Meanwhile, Kirby said Tuesday that prudent contingency planning is underway to evacuate Americans in the Middle East in case the war spreads into a broad regional conflict. He stressed there are currently no active efforts to evacuate Americans from the region beyond charter flights the U.S. government began operating earlier this month out of Israel. It would be imprudent and irresponsible if we didn't have folks thinking through a broad range of contingencies and possibilities, Kirby said. And certainly evacuations are one of those things. The U.S. Maritime Administration issued a warning Tuesday to ships traveling through the Red Sea to exercise caution when transiting this region, following the recent drone and missile attacks launched from Yemen. The U.S. Navy says it shot down missiles and drones believed to have been launched by Yemen's Iranian-backed Hote rebels amid rider tensions across the Middle East over the war. Hamas military arm, Qassam Brigades, said it fired a salvo of rockets on southern Israel Tuesday afternoon, including Beersheba, Israel's largest city in the area. There was no immediate word on any damages or casualties. Meanwhile, Israel is escalating its bombardment of targets in the Gaza Strip ahead of an expected ground invasion against Hamas militants. On Tuesday, Israel said it had launched 400 airstrikes over the past day, killing Hamas commanders, hitting militants as they were preparing to launch rockets into Israel, and striking command centers in a Hamas tunnel shaft. The previous day, Israel reported 320 strikes. The Palestinian official news agency, WAFA, said many of the airstrikes hit residential buildings, some of them in southern Gaza, where Israel had told civilians to take shelter. One Israeli airstrike killed a bustling marketplace in Nisiret refugee camp in central Gaza, killing several shoppers and wounding dozens, witnesses said, according to the Associated Press. Men used sledgehammers to break up concrete and dug with bare hands through jagged wreckage to save anyone they could or recover the dead who had been buying meat and vegetables when the explosion hit. Al-Kirdra said they have received 1,550 reports of missing Palestinians, including 870 children, suggesting those missing could still be under the rubble of collapsed buildings. At least 16,297 others were wounded, he said. Twelve hospitals, out of a total of 35 in Gaza, were out of service because of damage from bombing or lack of desperately needed supplies of food, fuel, and medicine, the World Health Organization and Gaza's Health Ministry said separately Tuesday. The Ministry of Health announces a complete collapse of hospitals in the Gaza Strip, Al-Qudra said in a statement. Hospital doors remaining open does not mean that they are providing service to the flood of wounded people flowing into them. The World Health Organization said 46 out of 72 healthcare facilities across Gaza, or 64%, were not operating, mostly in Gaza City and northern Gaza. Al-Qudra called for the Egyptian government to open the Rafal crossing, crossing point and ensure the delivery of medical supplies and fuels to Gaza and allow the wounded to be treated in Egypt. Egypt said it didn't close the crossing, but Israeli airstrikes on its Palestinian side forced the closure. Palestinian Authority Foreign Minister Riyad al-Makliki on Tuesday urged the United Nations Security Council to halt Israel's attacks in Gaza. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, also addressing the Security Council in New York, accused Israel of violating global humanitarian law in Gaza and pleaded for protection of civilians in the war-torn territory.
Guterres said Palestinian grievances don't justify the appalling Hamas attack that stunned Israel and the world, but said that attack doesn't justify the punishment now raining down on the Palestinian people. It is important to also recognize the attack by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum, Guterres said. The Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. Former President Barack Obama expressed similar concern Monday, saying Hamas is guilty of unspeakable brutality, but Israel's military response must strictly abide by international law to shape international opinion and build alliances, or it could ultimately backfire. The Israeli government's decision to cut off food, water, and electricity to a captive civilian population threatens not only to worsen a growing humanitarian crisis, it could further harden Palestinian attitudes for generations, erode global support for Israel, play into the hands of Israel's enemies, and undermine long-term efforts to achieve peace and stability in the region, Obama wrote in a post for the online site Medium. It's therefore important that those of us supporting Israel in its time of need encourage a strategy that can incapacitate Hamas while minimizing further civilian casualties. French President Emmanuel Macron echoed the morning in Israel Tuesday while meeting with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. In stressing Israel's right to defend itself against Hamas, Macron said, the fighting must be without mercy but not without rules because democracies respect the rules of war. On his two-day visit to the region, Macron proposed a coalition to fight terror groups in the Middle East that threaten all of us and called for access to aid for Gaza and for electricity to be supplied to Gaza hospitals. Washington Senator gets arrested in Hong Kong. A Washington state senator said he was arrested after landing at the Hong Kong International Airport for carrying a gun not registered in the city. Jeff Wilson, a Republican from Longview, was taken into custody on Saturday at the airport while traveling with his wife on the first leg of a five-week vacation in Southeast Asia, according to his office and local media reports. Wilson, 63, is charged with carrying a firearm without a license, according to the city's public broadcaster, RTHK. The senator, who has served in the state Senate since 2021, said he did not know he was, his pistol was in his briefcase when he passed through airport security in Portland, and he said that the baggage screeners failed to note it. Wilson appeared before Shaw Tin Court on Monday and was granted bail, an RTHK reported, and is due back on, in court on October 30th. Press accounts indicate that the weapon was discovered during a bag check are incorrect, Wilson said. According to Wilson, he discovered the weapon mid-flight between San Francisco and Hong Kong when he reached into his briefcase for a piece of gum, and he felt his unloaded revolver inside. When the plane landed, he said he immediately went to customs officials and alerted them. Wilson called the incident an honest mistake and said he expected the case to resolve shortly. The senator said he was on a personal vacation at his own expense. Wilson, who said he holds a concealed pistol license, said that Although the firearm was not registered in Hong Kong, it is registered in Washington State.